Tendermint does proof-of-stake and Byzantine fault tolerance. So everybody in the Cosmos ecosystem is proof-of-stake and Byzantine fault tolerance. And in fact, my general sense is that all modern chains, all chains that have started more recently in the last several years, all of them have been proof-of-stake and Byzantine fault tolerance, or at least all of them have not been proof-of-work in longest chain. If you're just joining us, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Waxman, where together, you and I, we get to dive deep into Bitcoin and crypto. We're going to go back today, decades, when smart contracts were really founded, and to truly understand how this movement came to be, where we are right now, and where we're going. And sometimes it's not just looking back to like when Bitcoin was founded, don't forget that Satoshi had cited a lot of other material that had preceded him in, in the white paper of Bitcoin. So a lot of the times when we stumble upon some really interesting stuff, we get to talk about it to you. And today we have a lovely guest, Mark Miller. Mark, thank you so much for joining the show today. You're welcome. So I, I love talking about the history. Yes. Yeah. And, and what's going on right now too. I just want to read something that I think is, is really interesting. You wrote this abstract, and, it, and I just want to read it really quick. You said, like all systems involving goals, resources, and actions, computation can be viewed in economic terms. Computer science has moved from centralized toward increasingly decentralized models of control and action. Use of market mechanisms would be a natural extension of this development. The ability of trade and price mechanisms to combine local decisions by diverse parties into globally effective behavior suggests their value for organizing computation in large systems. You're basically talking about smart contracts, DeFi, Bitcoin, crypto, almost everything that we're doing now in 1988. That's right. I'll, I'll tell you, the one thing that we missed is blockchain. Blockchain took me by surprise. We developed well before Bitcoin Starting from those papers, we developed quite a mature vision of a future of smart contracting that didn't have anything like blockchain in it. When blockchain happened, it really took me by surprise. And I didn't quite know how the vision of smart contracting that we had developed fit with the blockchain vision. And it took me a while to, to understand that. Now, of course, we're, we're, building, we're building on both and combining the, the best virtues of both. I just want to read a bio of you. You were a former Google research scientist. You co-authored the Agoric papers, which I just read the abstract, and everyone should go check out. And now you're the chief scientist of Agoric, which is a JavaScript native smart contract platform. But going back to that paper, what was missing? Like, what did blockchain do? Because okay. it seems like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's really kind of central to how I think about things now. There are two problems of centralization that are solved by two different kinds of decentralization. We can think of the two problems of centralization as ignorance and malice. The, I'll write that down. Okay. The, the first kind of decentralization is the decentralization that we see with the internet, with the web, and in general with the marketplace, which is what I will call loosely coupled decentralization where you've got no one decision that everyone needs to agree on. There's lots of different players making their own decisions for their own reasons to serve their own goals, and they're coordinating with each other based on loose agreement on standards. In the web in particular, we see that, well, with the internet and the web, that you need the loose agreement on standards, but it doesn't prevent architectural experimentation and diversity and the growth of those standards in, a, in this decentralized, loosely coordinated manner, which, you know, first people try experiments and agree with each other, and then only later do they need to be codified into something with wide recognition. So the main thing about this kind of loosely coupled decentralization is that it's, it addresses a primary problem of our ignorance, which is we don't know what arrangements will work. We need lots and lots of experiments, what Hayek calls competition as a discovery procedure. We need lots of experiments, people trying lots of different things so that the ones that work survive and the others don't. And we have this continual evolutionary process 
or to put it another way, the resilience against our ignorance is competition and reputation feedback. Now, this form of loosely coupled decentralization is also a very good defense against malice, again, by competition and reputation feedback. But its way of defending against malice has an interesting limit to it, which is this world of loosely coupled decentralization works when all of the actors are small and diverse and competitive. And for some institutions, like a money, money becomes useful primarily by network effect, primarily by being a coordination mechanism that many, many people all agree on the same money. Even adversarial people. I'm sorry? Yes, even even adversarial people. So Hayek's decentralization of money was very much the way we were thinking, very much the way, you know, for example, the people who authored The Sovereign Individual were thinking, pretty much the way the cypherpunks were thinking before Bitcoin and its immediate predecessors. And that works. It reflects well the way the, the international order works, where there's no one money over the world, but it's still each individual money needs to grow to a size of institution or to to really function well as a money, needs still to have a large volume as a single institution. And then the problem with the single institution is the single institution either goes bad or doesn't. The external competition and reputation feedback only pressures it to figure out how to operate in a trustworthy manner, but it doesn't give it the means to operate in a trustworthy manner. That's the problem. Right. And this is the problem that blockchain solves, is this is the problem of being able to compose a single institution, which is vastly more trustworthy than any of the members of the institution. So with blockchain, blockchain solves this additional malice problem, the ability to create a single trustworthy institution that operates as it was constitutionally constructed to operate, operates according to the initial agreement about how it's supposed to operate, that then all of the the miners or all of the validators then replicate and cross-check each other. And that solves that particular malice problem, but at the price of not solving the ignorance problem. This is now a, it has replaced competition and diverse experimentation with governance. How? Why? Because in a blockchain, you repeatedly at several different levels of abstraction, but but first of all, just the basic consensus mechanism, what's consensus about? It means repeatedly the entire system has to come to a single decision where that single decision affects all of the participants in that one system. Then at another level of abstraction, if people come to believe that the system should operate in a different way, come to believe that we've made a mistake, that there's this change we need to make, then there's this governance issue which might be resolved through through a fork or it might be resolved through a more modern uh, you know, governance mechanism built into the chain. But nevertheless, it means that you're, you're trying to coordinate through a large social coordination process. You can call it a political process if you want, coming to a social consensus among a large number of people to operate in a different manner and then deciding to do so. And then at least for the fork in which that decision applies, then lots of people are then affected by that single decision. So a large organization that has a good governance system, let's assume that we've designed governance systems which are good, a good governance system defends against malice. It means that the organization will make decisions that are, let's say, ideally made in good faith, because that's what you can get consensus on by a wide diversity of participants but they still have to make a decision now about how they will operate without knowing what the consequences are. So anytime you substitute diverse experimentation with governance, you're now making decisions in ignorance and necessarily trying your best to figure out what the consequences will be ahead of time without the protection of having lots of diverse experiments so you can survive being wrong. 
And you can't survive being wrong. And that's why changing the consensus is so difficult in like blockchains like Bitcoin. Is this like a good thing or a bad thing? It's that's such a, you're talking about like the whole is greater than its parts. Just using Bitcoin, for example, it's a single institution, like you were saying, that's constitutionally agreed how it's supposed to operate and making changes that can retroactively affect retroactive and future people that want to be ignorant is part of its constitution. So the answer is not that it's good or bad. The answer is that it has pros and cons, but it's a necessary part of the world. So the technology makes it is what it is, and then that people can choose it versus something else because the blockchain technology allows all the code to be open source and everyone to know what is in its constitution. And then you can also see, you can also decide for yourself how difficult it is for certain blockchains to be changeable. Therefore, the option to opt out is more important than sometimes wanting to opt out, if you will. Right. And it's still important that at this, at you know, at the at the largest granularity that we still have competition and recovery, yeah. and, uh, competition reputation feedback. So it's still the case that any one blockchain that makes a fatal mistake doesn't take the entire world down with it but can still be very costly to a large number of people. So in that sense, it's more like the the society that we have, which is the marketplace is mostly lots and lots of small players, but there are small numbers of large players that are institutions that coordinate across many parties. Yeah, Money, again, being a, a great example, but there's there's many such things. Through blockchain, the ability to do this in a way that's still protected fairly strongly against malice to where ignorance is the only remaining problem is still a huge, huge progress in the world. The, on, by building institutions by smart contracts on blockchains, we can build institutions that are more transparent, auditable, neutral, uh, reliable, incorruptible, oh. you know, all of these virtues that our real world institutions lack, these institutions non-political, unpolitical. Well, unpolitical, imagine, except, I'm sorry. I said, imagine a world. Yeah. Seems like yeah. every institution so, is just being politicized nowadays. And like, I dream of a world, especially when we're going through COVID. I, I was like, I was like, wow, imagine. And like, a lot of people look at me like, Charlie, you're crazy. But a lot of these institutions, especially what we're going, you know, we're going through now with these banking crises, a lot of the top level, uh, balance sheets of these institutions were just on a blockchain for like read only. Trust would be a lot higher. Yeah, yeah. the problem with our with a lot of our big institutions in society is primarily the malice problem. Is primarily that they're not trustworthy, not primarily because they're ignorant of what the right thing to do is, but because there's they're not resilient enough to bad faith actors within the institution and bad faith actors lobbying the institutions. And with blockchain, we can build institutions that are resilient against all of those political malicious forces. But we need to remember that the price of doing that is that that institution is still, when it inevitably will make some bad decisions because it has to make the decisions before it knows the consequences, and those bad decisions will still have large-scale bad consequences. So what's the solution then? I think that this is this combination, which um, uh, you know, Eleanor Ostrom uses the term polycentrism, which I love. You can think of the large institutions, like you know, Bitcoin is decentralized in the sense that there's no one party that can corrupt it. So it's decentralized in, in this protection with redundancy and transparency, et cetera, against malice but it's centralized in the sense of repeatedly having to make single decisions. So Eleanor Ostrom's polycentrism is the perspective that different decisions need to be made at different scales and that each decision should be made at the finest scale that it practically can be made so it can get the most benefit from competition and reputation feedback and experiment, diverse experimentation and thereby resilience against mistakes. You want, them, you want these decisions to be made as fine-grained as possible. Yeah. But some decisions need to be made at larger grain. And for those, you, you inevitably get into governance. And 
with smart contracts built on blockchain, we now have a new technological foundation for creating systems of governance that, again, are, are more transparent, auditable, incorruptible, and affordable than anything human beings have ever been able to do by any means prior. So this is still a huge advance in the world. And I think that this polycentrism is inherent in the nature of the world. I don't think you solve polycentrism. I think you accept polycentrism as the overall structure. Uh. And then within that structure, you try to make sure that A, the decisions are as diverse and fine-grained as possible to protect against ignorance and malice. And then for the decisions that can't be fine-grained, you use mechanisms like smart contracts on blockchain and well-designed governance institutions written into those smart contracts to coordinate large numbers of people to make large-scale decisions when necessary. So polycentrism is like super cool now. And I and and you're attaching a label to something that I've really thought about and, and studied. I've been studying every single consensus mechanism since since, since the day Satoshi wrote the white paper and, and every blockchain and platform and protocol that's come out ever since. It begs the question that I sometimes wonder where in money and some institutions you do want decisions to be made. But one of the things that Satoshi talked about was the fact that when it comes to money specifically, no decision should be made at all. And it should just be totally like set in stone. And so to that point, Bitcoin is an experiment on on that, on like, can we have a non-polycentrism money? But at the same time, I don't know if we want the world's money to be like, what's the non, what's the opposite of polycentrism? Like, like monocentrism, you know, or, you know, or where you're, where what you said, it's where you have a central, even though it's decentralized, you have to make central decisions. So you, central decisions in the sense that there are single decisions that affect a large number of parties, but they're still made through a governance process that brings lots of players together to make that decision. And what we've learned with, you know, even, in, even in Bitcoin, which is the, the system that is most resistant to having its method of operation changed, that even there, we've seen various fights, like over yeah. SegWit and such. You know, ultimately, the legitimacy of any institution is founded on the shared expectation that people will continue to consider it to be legitimate. And blockchain changes the nature of that in many ways, but it doesn't change the, that fundamental truth. It's still the case that if all the miners running Bitcoin all you know all come to agreement tomorrow to run Bitcoin Prime, then they're running Bitcoin Prime. You can't really make something that's genuinely immutable, but you can make something that's extremely hard to change. And Bitcoin is certainly certainly in that scenario, they'd be mining a new chain. It would be a fork where yes, well, every every now transaction is happening on a very small Bitcoin chain, but then the Bitcoin prime miners could overtake and have the longer chain potentially. But the node operators that are running all the, the on the economic side would have to change their software too and change the ticker. And we don't know if they would do that. And then on the economic right. side of things, you know, you mentioned you mentioned that the whole is greater than its parts. And I love that. I totally agree. It's a single institution that's greater than the, the single parts. And we've never seen anything in my lifetime, that's like, where is the whole greater than its parts? And here it's like a perfect example of it. So if if that were to happen, then the integrity of, of Bitcoin would just disappear. And, the, and there would be, oh, no economic value to do it unless you were trying to like kill it. And why would you want to kill it, spend okay. billions of dollars to kill something? But so do you so, think, so I, yeah. So essentially, I agree with you that, that, um, once the thing is operating well, that the benefits of immutability are extremely high. But it's a judgment by the participants that the system has reached a point where the, the need to change it has fallen below the effort needed to change it. 
And at that point, you do have effective immutability. You you call road to immutability. I've been saying on this show path to decentralization, but it's the same thing, really. We're in agreement. Yeah. Well, so the I mean, Ethereum is is you know the other great you know example of this issue, which is there was tremendous controversy about. Uh, how they dealt with the DAO bug. And there was Ethereum Classic, which forked off and continued without fixing the DAO bug, uh, you know, without reversing that transaction. Yeah, we just um, talked about the DAO but, bug on the last episode. Oh, okay. I missed that. I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, the and so, so in that sense, the Ethereum as a logical entity was immutable in the sense that Ethereum Classic continued by the original constitution but most people participating in Ethereum switched to the forked Ethereum that reversed that transaction. However, this is the key thing, is that it was such a bad precedent. It was, it was, it was a precedent that, that, I mean, it was a, an action that if taken as a precedent, communicated that transactions are not irreversible. So the, at the time that the Dow bug happened, it was something like $70 million that had been yeah. stolen. I don't remember what the exact number is. $55 million um, or something. $55 million? Okay. Since then, there have been bugs in smart contracts that in total have cost tens of billions yeah. of dollars. <laughs> Lots of and money. For, and, and initially, as you had much larger such problems, there was discussion about doing it again doing another reversal. Yeah. And fortunately, for reasons that I think are clear to all of us, everybody understood that if we ever do this a second time, then we've lost our credibility that we won't do it a third time. That the only way to recover from the loss of confidence that happened from that first reversal is not to do it again. But that decision not to do it again is still a governance decision. It's the decision by everyone not to try to bring together the extraordinary effort it would take to do another fork. Yeah, it was very early days too. And 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 I I, I flip-flop back and forth on my feelings about about that too. Cause some days I I I'm on your side. Then other days I say to myself, well, Ethereum would have died if it hadn't done it. So what else? Could they have done? And the other side of it, Vitalik was very transparent about like the path of decentralization that Ethereum would need to get to. And his view is just like Ethereum wasn't there yet. And it was just a new thing. Anyone, everyone in all the miners could be brought into like an IRC room and he can pause. He got all the exchanges to pause trading. That's how small Ethereum was. Like every exchange had paused, he got every exchange to pause the trading of Ethereum. You can't do that anymore. You wouldn't be right. able to do the what happened to the DAO. So like everyone assumes, and I'm the same way, that all blockchains need to launch decentralized. And my view is like Bitcoin was able to do it because it flew under the radar for like seven, eight years. But now blockchains can't. They can't get to that like immutability point where the whole is greater than its parts. It takes a while. So maybe it's Ethereum more, get going through that was it's kind of like going to battle. And now that it came out on the other side, I've never been bullish on Ethereum until, until you know, now, like, ten, like all these years later. So it is very fortunate that it's part of the sort of the natural consequence of a blockchain growing over time that its resistance to change sort of naturally grows. It's it, cool. it grows both because it's harder to get the agreement together to make the change, and it grows by virtue of the general correct agreement by, by many players that making another change communicates a very, very bad signal. Often we're, we're better off leaving a flawed structure in place than we are changing it because you can if if we all understand that there's a flawed structure that's immutable then we can all coordinate around its flaws we can make plans that compensate for its flaws on the outside and that has to be traded off against fixing the flaws so let me let me just mention so at agoric we have yeah that's a, what I was going to ask how are you using this polycentrism because okay. i do agree we need better layers that's what you're kind of advocating for how how do we do that and what are you okay. doing at Agoric for that? Okay. So at Agoric, we have built the blockchain. Uh, the blockchain is part of the Cosmos ecosystem. 
Oh, awesome. The consensus mechanism is the Tendermint consensus mechanism. Uh, the IBC protocol, which knits the Cosmos ecosystem together, actually comes out of our earlier work. Really? Loosely coupled. Yeah, it was inspired by the work that we did on CAPTP, the Capability Transport Protocol, that was part of this loosely coupled world of smart contract, this loosely coupled vision where you had competition and reputation feedback, but you had many mutually suspicious machines, many mutually suspicious platforms, each of which were running their own smart contracts communicating with each other. So that the 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 key thing was to create a protocol in which the contracts running on one machine could collaborate with contracts running on machines that it did not trust. Ah. Uh, that run that, that you could have you could have mutual suspicion between machines and have the contracts running on these mutually suspicious machines, which were therefore mutually suspicious contracts, also talking to each other. And there were some fundamental insights that led to the nature of this protocol that then the, the people at Cosmos, uh, primarily Zaki Manyan, Sunny Agarwal, and others, to realize that this basic logic of CAPTP, of how it creates a stitching together of software across mutually suspicious machines in a way that can be reasoned about faithfully at a higher level. I can expand on that. And because they, they built um, but, a constitution about how all blockchains should talk to each other. They set the standard well, for it. And that's why the IBC well, they, is they, brilliant. But, but, they, not, but it's a standard that works even when any of the participating machines maliciously deviates from the standard. That's the key thing. Uh, so, th- so they re- they looked at at our old work and realized how to lift that basic insight into blockchains talking to each other, which itself took some really important inventions that were not implicit in the original work. That was itself a whole new set of hard problems to solve. Um, so cool, man! It's so cool but, how it just plays like all this work just builds on top of each other and come out with these breakthroughs that changes everyone's lives, and no one really understands it. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, They're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are going to face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are going to love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. Mutual suspicion. Yeah, so we built a blockchain that runs our stack of software, but our stack of software builds on this distributed object capability level, which is the capabilities of the CAPTP protocol from the earlier work that I referred to. And on top of that, it builds a set of smart contracts where the smart contracts can be composed And even though all of our smart contracts right now are all running on our chain, we've built the technology so that if the, you know, if smart contract A talking to smart contract B, it talk, the two smart contracts talk to each other in the same way, whether they're both running on the same chain or whether they're running on different chains. So that that the, the higher levels of our software can be distributed layered on top of, of IBC can be distributed itself across chains that are themselves mutually suspicious. How would, um, how would you bring IBC to like 
something than like a Bitcoin that has that different type of blockchain structure? Great question. So IBC, this is where earlier I talked about how loosely coupled decentralization still needs loose agreement on protocols. Uh, that was the you know the famous IETF slogan was um, the what is it loose agreement loose consensus on protocols we, that is what they're seeking in standards committee not not um, not you know rigid point by point conformance. So IBC is designed to make minimal assumptions about the endpoint chains, the chains at the endpoints of the protocol. But one of the assumptions that, that is made by IBC is finality. And finality, you get that from proof-of-stake chains. You get that from any chain that's using something like a Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus mechanism, which is once it's arrived at consensus, that consensus itself is understood to be final and that you're only going forward from there. Bitcoin is still a proof of work chain. Ethereum, of course, until recently was a proof of work chain. And with proof of work chains, in theory, you don't have finality. In practice, you have very expensive finality. Ah, uh, I know why. Okay, I understand why. Go ahead. No, I think it's because... Because in Bitcoin, you have constant unspent inputs and outputs that make up a transaction, whereas in Ethereum, being like an account model, it's more of like an Excel spreadsheet where it's moving debiting and crediting from one person's. So finality can be done with like one, one transaction block, but you can also use something like a ZK rollup, whereas Bitcoin, you have to have a copy of the whole chain and check the whole transaction history. So that's that's not that's not really the I mean that's that is an important difference between the chains, but that's not the source of lack of finality. The okay. source of lack of finality is the is the longest chain heuristic, is the longest extension heuristic. Okay. Which is at any moment somebody might release a set of verified blocks that start at some earlier block and exceed the what what was the visible longest chain and this is called a reorganization and it's why uh, you need a certain confirmation depth before you believe that bitcoin has made a decision so in theory there's no finality because in theory you're not certain that the transaction is irreversible at any confirmation depth like adding bits to a cryptography key, it's, it's essentially exponentially more unlikely to see a reversal as you get to a greater confirmation. Yeah, because you have to go uh, longer but, in history. Right. So, so what people practically do is they say, I'm going to treat this transaction as irreversible once it has reached a confirmation depth of, let's say, six. And a confirmation depth of six on the Bitcoin blockchain is, takes a long time. Yeah, and so, that and the reason six is important is because the same reason like six degrees of separation is that it has to broadcast to all the nodes. And once you've hit, because the nodes are the ones maintaining the ledger, not necessarily the miners specifically. So once a transaction is broadcast and every node that's maintaining the ledger, it takes six transactions to really hit everyone on a decentralized system. That's not my understanding that the that every node can be informed earlier, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to get a longer chain appearing. So this this danger of the appearance of a longer chain, it's very, very expensive to Yeah, yeah. That's the reorganization. An, how does how does something like Ethereum or a proof of stake prevent this? Okay. So proof of stake, there's two separate differences that are non-orthogonal, that are, that are in fact highly correlated, but we need to be careful that they are separate decisions. One is proof of work versus proof of stake. And the other one is decision-making, you know, arriving at consensus by longest chain versus arriving at consensus by a consensus protocol like Byzantine fault tolerance. Yeah. So I'm going to, having, having you know, just been careful that these are two separate decisions. I'm not going to treat those decisions as coupled because Bitcoin is proof of work and longest chain. 
Ethereum was proof of work in longest chain. And when they switched, they switched both elements to proof of stake and Byzantine fault tolerance. Tendermint does proof of stake and Byzantine fault tolerance. So everybody in the Cosmos ecosystem is proof of stake and Byzantine fault tolerance. And in fact, my general sense is that all modern chains, all chains that have started more recently in the last several years, all of them have been proof of stake and Byzantine fault tolerance, or at least all of them have not been proof of work in longest chain. Even, even scaling on Bitcoin are using proof of stake mechanisms that checkpoint like the Bitcoin proof of work chain. Okay. Okay. I'm less familiar with those, or I'm not familiar with those. But the thing about Byzantine fault tolerance is there is this protocol that the validators, in switching from proof of work longest chain to proof of stake Byzantine fault tolerance, I'm also going to couple that with the shift of terminology from miners to validators. So the validators in participating in the protocol, at some point, the protocol says we've come to an agreement. And the protocol doesn't say we've come to agreement until the protocol does say we've come to an agreement. And once the protocol says it ah. does, we have come to an agreement, it would then require a, a supermajority of the validators to misbehave in order for the chain as a whole to seem to have come to a conflicting agreement. So this is the equivocation issue. And this is the thing that causes slashing. This is what the stake is about in proof so what of stake. Happens? So what happens is the to be a validator, you have to put a stake up. You have to put a certain amount of assets into escrow. If an individual validator equivocates, it's a non-repudiatable piece of misbehavior. It's a visible, provable piece of misbehavior. Yeah, you'll lose your stake if you misbehave. Value. Yeah, so, so you lose your stake if you misbehave, and that keeps the validators from misbehaving. And as long as less than two-thirds plus one validators misbehave, then the chain cannot come to one agreement and then seem to have come to a conflicting agreement. So that gives us finality. Once observers of the chain see the chain as having come to one agreement, they can then understand that that agreement is final. And that can happen quickly. That can happen in like five seconds as opposed to the time it takes for a proof of work chain to get to five confirmation depths deep, which can, in comparison, seem like forever. I get the speed issue. That's definitely like the, the cell, it, you know, it's, it's the speed. But I'm not sold on, if you're talking about malice and misbehavior, Bitcoin, yes, you're worried that at any time a larger reorganization could happen from an external source and there would no, be no economic incentive to do so other than to kill Bitcoin or whatever. But in your scenario, the same danger is still there, but you're just shifting it from an external into an internal bad actor. And so the bad actor would then, instead of needing all the energy that's all decentralized all over the world in proof of work, that actor would just need to purchase two thirds of all of the tokens and then be able to take control of the chain and remove its finality and change anything they want. So first of all, that uh, your the the conclusion there is correct that that a um, uh, anyone who buys up two thirds plus one of the voting power is uh, can can definitely do a lot of permanent damage to a chain. Uh, so that danger is real. Vitalik has a very interesting observation on that that I'll come back to. But let me just concede that that danger is real. Uh, the thing about the longest chain rule is that reorganizations are not necessarily malice. Short reorganizations are not malice. And there's no hard criteria that says how deep a reorganization, you know, that that five, you can't say, well, five is clearly not malice yeah. and six is clearly malice. There's no hard line there. So it's part of normal operation. Having participated in one branch, it's not malicious to equivocate. It's not. It's expected that a miner, if he's contributed to one branch and then sees that another branch has gotten longer, it's correct behavior for the miner to then contribute to the other branch. Ah, uh, I see what you're saying. You're saying that mine that proof of work. There's no misbehavior because you're you have to blindly follow the the longest chain unless you want to not be passive anymore and make a decision. 
Whereas in proof of stake, you're a bad actor now. Then what defines what a bad actor is then? What defines that you would lose your stake if you yeah. did something wrong? Who can, can someone change that? So equivocation is, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about, about coupling proof of stake to Byzantine fault tolerance is that the chain as a whole can only seem to make a contradictory decision to a decision it, it had made before if validators equivocate. And if they equivocate, they cannot help but leave behind non-repudiatable cryptographic evidence that they have repudi repudiated. They've signed two certificates, essentially, oh, that contradict each other. And the proof-of-stake mechanism, when is an automated mechanism that would prevent it, present it with proof of equivocation, burns the stake. So the deterrence to prevent the malicious misbehavior is automated as part of the fundamental smart contract that makes the proof of stake mechanism, makes the stake itself an actual stake that gets sacrificed. But what defines that? What defines like what's bad? You know, what defines what's going to trigger the burning of my stake? Equivocation. What defines what equivocation is then? Equivocation is I have as part of one round of consensus, said to one party that I'm participating in this consensus round in this way, and I've said to another party I'm participating in this consensus round another way, causing the outcome of the, you know, trying to contribute to confusing okay. what the outcome yeah. of the consensus round is. Well, what if, what if Italic so came out today and said, like, everyone needs to equivocate and do this now, even though it's against the constitution of Ethereum, because we found this major problem with it or something like that, or that he believes that we need to change some monetary theory. Since we're wargaming, I'm just curious if that's like a... a so, so that would be very interesting if uh, Vitalik called for a correction to happen by bringing together a critical mass of equivocation. That would be... I'm not expecting to see that happen. That would no, be a well, very, because Ethereum is sufficiently on that road to decentralization. It's past the point of immutability. Even if he wanted to, I don't think Vitalik could because there are enough, like I love what you said, mutually suspicious. There are enough people that love Ethereum that simply don't like Vitalik out there. And I love, I'm just for the record, I've known Vitalik before he even founded Ethereum. He's written about me in my early Bitcoin days and we were friends, good times together. And I'm proud to say this, and, and I'm not one of those people, but there are enough like adversarial groups within Ethereum that even creating a critical mass to like say, hey, let's all equivocate. I don't think it's ever possible with Ethereum, but not to say with other ones, it's not. Which leads me, I'm like on this thesis that decentralization is a journey and we need to define how to get there. I think you're raising an interesting question. I don't, it's, it's sufficiently intricate that to really lay out what the consequences would be of a proof of stake chain trying to change its mind in this way. Let me not try to analyze yeah. the, the overall consequences in real time, but let me just, I think we can both agree it's very, it would be very painful and it would trigger the burning of the stake at least on the original chain, whether anybody's continuing to run the original chain or not it would still burn the stake on the original chain because that's what the automated mechanism does when it's presented with proof of equivocation. So nobody can, nobody can prevent the original chain from burning the stake. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of so cool. It, so yeah. so, the, so the, this mechanism really has teeth. But let, let, me, let me bring up, let me, let me go back. It's like to a self-destruction situation. Mutually yeah. assured self-destruction. Yeah, so Agoric is uh, let, me, let me go back to this, this theme of ignorance and malice and polycentrism and governance and immutability and talk about how it also arises at other levels of the system. Agoric is building a framework for composable, reliable smart contracting in which you've got many, many sources of safety that are absent from the way Pretty much all other chains are pursuing smart contracting. There's the protections at the by having the foundations be in the object capability uh, security model, which is a foundational model of account recovery, rights ownership, and rights transfer. I'm sorry, account recovery. There are other people at Agoric who've been thinking about account, uh, things or issues around account recovery 
I have not, so I'm going to pass on commenting on that one, but it's a good question. I'm glad you raised it. No, I love that. Um, I love passing on questions. I'm going to do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sorry uh, to interrupt your, your train of thought. I apologize. So at a higher level, we have uh, a smart contracting framework that, that uh, called Zoe that has built into it a, a very important guardrail we call offer safety, which I can come back to and explain. I think it's really important. In terms of tying it back to the themes we've been talking about here today, I want to then talk about the governance mechanism and some of the, the that we, we've also built for upgrading a contract. I mean, the, in, in Ethereum, we've all seen this proxy-based upgrade mechanism, and we've seen that it's a source of vulnerability, and we've seen that uh, upgrade of a contract is both needed to fix mistakes, but also destroys the immutability of the contract, which means that it destroys the, the, the sense in which hmm. people can rely on the immutability in order to coordinate around fixed rules that they understand. So one of the things that we've talked about at Agoric, let me, let me say this particular additional wrinkle on our governance mechanism, we haven't actually done this yet, but we've talked about this and it would fit with our overall framework, is you can think of the lifetime of any contract as having something in common with the dynamic we've already talked about with regard to Ethereum, which is initially your main danger is the danger that you've misunderstood the contract that you've written, that maybe the contract has a bug in it. Okay. Maybe it has, uh, maybe the contract itself was written maliciously, or maybe it just has a bug that's ex maliciously exploitable. Or maybe it's simply that the contract meant one thing, but people understood the contract to mean something else, or the contract didn't really live up to the expectations of what the emergent properties of the contract is. So I'm going to just lump all of these different issues together Into one, under yeah. the ignorance label of the contract didn't mean what we thought it meant. And initially, that's the, that's the high danger when you roll out a contract. And that's why you need governance in place to be able to decide to upgrade the contract to fix a bug. Because if, if you roll out the contract and it has a bad bug, you want to be able to fix it. But you want not to be not one yes. party to have the power to fix it because then you're completely vulnerable to malice. That would have prevented the DAO hack. Yes, exactly. The Tezos was the first chain to have on-chain governance. Yeah. So we very much believe in on-chain governance, both with regard to the chain as a whole and with regard to the individual contract. So when you create an individual contract, you publicly and transparently create the governance arrangement for deciding to upgrade the contract. And if when you decide to trust that a contract will behave in a particular way, that should be based not just on understanding of the code of the contract, but understanding what governance arrangement governs the decision to change the contract? And do you believe that that governance arrangement is an adequate protection against a bad faith upgrade? Interesting. So that part, all of that part, that's all in place. The additional wrinkle that, that we've talked about that we haven't done yet has to do with this sliding change over time of what the major danger is. So Initially, your major danger is ignorance, the bugs or other ways of misunderstanding the contract. Sure. As time goes on, you become more confident that you understand what the contract means. More people have analyzed the code. The main thing is it's been playtested adversarially as people try to exploit the contract and you see what the emergence effects of the contract are under adversarial playtesting as increasing amounts of real assets are at stake. And that gives everyone more confidence that they understand what the contract means. So your, your dangers from ignorance start high and go down. The dangers from, um, uh, the, the, uh, from malicious upgrade decision go up over time. Because initially, yeah. people invest in a contract not really because everyone's read the code of the contract or somebody's done a formal proof of the contract and, and everybody's read the specification that was proven to it to be conformed to. I mean, that's sort of 
this, this vague background theory of what we could all in theory be doing, but that's not what actually happens. What actually happens is it starts off with a social-based trust of who built the contract, what have been, they've been saying about it, how public and transparent has been the, the creation of the contract and the filing of bugs and all of that process around the contract. But then over time, the people who built the contract are not necessarily the one, you know, heavily involved in the contract and its continued governance over time. The assets at stake go up. And so overall, you would like the contract to become more immutable over time in just the way we talked about how it was ah. good for the chains to become more immutable. Over oh, time. so you could like almost allow, you set like a time frame of when the contract becomes more immutable because in the beginning, you want to make sure it acts the way it's supposed to act. That's right. Very so cool. the particular so the particular mechanism that I'm very attracted to and eager to try out is where the governance arrangement for a given contract at the outset has built into it a timing-based escalation, you know, a, a fixed schedule for escalating the degree of supermajority needed to make a decision. So maybe it starts off as you can upgrade if you've got a two-thirds majority, but over time, it, it goes closer and closer to unanimity, and even better than unanimity, at some announced time in the future, it can switch over to genuine immutability. Very cool. Very, very, very cool. I, you know, you literally define exactly why it's important to understand the history and why we're doing what we're doing, all the little pieces of it to be able to build out the future. So Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time today and talking about all these different topics and concepts and teaching us so much. I'm gonna put the links and to, to all your papers and what you're working on in the show notes. I'm sure most of my listeners are, are curious to learn more and, and hear more from you. Appreciate you taking the time this Friday and, and I hope you have a nice weekend. Okay, you too. 